Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 7th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. Noah Rothman is out this week. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And with us today, friend of the podcast, MSNBC political analyst extraordinaire, author of The Red and the Blue, Steve Kornacki. Hi, Steve. Hi, John. Hi, Christine. Abe, great to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us. So, Steve... New York City's mayoral primary, Democratic mayoral primary, appears finally to be over two weeks after uh, the ballots were cast or the last day of the balloting took place. Um, and the result that appeared to be in place on primary night after ranked choice counting and absentee ballot counting and a screw-up in the counting and a screw-up in the ranked choice counting and all of that – uh, as as on primary night and to, and today, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President and um, former police captain, uh, will likely be the next mayor of of New York City. Um, what are your thoughts about the? I mean, we have two things, right? We have this question of this logistical failure, uh, classic for the uh, for the. Uh, New York City Board of Elections. Uh, every election, it seems, features some terrible screw up, uh, but also the sort of mean, the larger meaning of Eric Adams's victory. So you have you, we have these two things going on at once. Yeah, I, I guess my my reactions would be number one, um, this was sort of a a grand experiment in in ranked choice voting, which is something that um, you know there are the state of Maine does this for a lot of its elections. A few cities like San Francisco, Oakland, a few other places do it, but this was by far the largest place where something like this had been tried, and I think it's it's the uh, it's the worst place. That uh, that this could have been tried uh, a New York City, you know, the, the problems with just election administration in New York City were already well established long before um, long before this race. And so to give the um, uh, really pretty incompetent New York City election board of elections the responsibility of executing ranked choice voting for a basically 12 candidate you know, primary. Um, very complicated stuff, and, and I think they they proved they weren't up to it, and that didn't surprise anybody. So that's that's one piece of it. I guess the the, the second piece of it, from my standpoint, in terms of the actual um, result, is you know, Eric Adams, who right looks like he'll be the next mayor, um, put together um, an interesting coalition. In that, it was sort of a classic outer borough coalition. He lost Manhattan. Um, you know, Catherine Garcia, who nearly beat him, um, carried Manhattan. Eric Adams did very poorly um, in, in, in Manhattan, but he carried the other four boroughs. Um, big numbers in the Bronx, big numbers um, in Brooklyn, solid numbers in Queens, and even even in, uh, on Staten Island. Small small piece of it, though, just sort of demographically. But that's sort of a, um, a classic coalition: outer boroughs versus Manhattan. Um, but he he put that together. He had. Um, a lot of resistance, I think, from sort of Manhattan, you might call Manhattan liberals. New York Times editorial board was, uh, you know, lined up with uh, uh, with Garcia. You had a lot of sort of, um, I'd say, liberal thought leaders in New York City nationally who were basically saying anybody but Eric Adams. Um, you know, he talked about hiring more police. Um, he talked about it, 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 it's something with a very interesting background, obviously, because Eric Adams was a police officer 
as a police officer, he was somebody who, who, who tried to shine a spotlight on what he saw as abuses by police officers, didn't necessarily make a lot of friends within the, the, the New York City Police Department. Uh, you know, this is the last about two decades ago, but also ran on a platform of more policing, defended aspects of stop and frisk at one point, talked about potentially walking around carrying his own gun as mayor. So I think he, he appealed. There was sort of a working class appeal, a working class outer borough appeal um, that, that he was able to tap into. He had strong black support. I would say strong working class support. Um, and it's, it's, it, I think that is the main takeaway from this, that a candidate like that was able to win. Although what I would say, too, is when you look at the, the, the rank choice voting, um, the, the details of it, that coalition that almost beat him, he's going to end up winning this thing by one point. It's going to be about 9,500 votes. It'll be the closest runoff they've ever had in New York City. And that coalition that almost beat him essentially was Catherine Garcia, who, who rolled up huge numbers in Manhattan, was the endorsed candidate of the New York Times, the wealthier the neighborhood was. That If you put, if you just pile up two demographic factors, um, uh, uh, white and college educated, and the, and the higher it got in, in those categories, the better Catherine Garcia was doing. You put her coalition and then Maya Wiley, because those, the, the, the Wiley voters who in the final round had to, you know, they, they said, who was their next choice, Adams or Garcia? By a better than two to one margin, they went to uh, they went to Garcia. That coalition was almost enough to win this primary, and then you know basically to, to pick the next mayor of New York City. So that's that that sort of progressive coalition that uh, a lot of people have been talking about being in, in sort of an insurgent force in Democratic politics. It didn't quite win here, but it got it got it got to forty nine and a half percent. So. I think there's there's a couple meanings here, probably. Well, do you do you look at the Garcia? Because I think you could also you could flip it the other way and say that Garcia ran, relatively speaking, again within a within a narrow bandwidth of liberal politics in New York, liberal to leftist politics in New York, ran as a non ideological candidate. She had been the sanitation commissioner. She was there to get things done. She was there to to be a, you know, an efficient, uh, to A, be the first woman and to B, get things done. And Wiley ran as a progressive, like cut the police department, cut spending for the police. Uh, Scott Stringer, the Manhattan borough president who got sidelined by uh, a, by sexual harassment charges, ran as a progressive. There was someone named Diane Morales. She ran as a progressive. So you had the three other candidates Andrew Yang, who led for most of the, in the polls for most of the season, the election season, Eric Adams and, um, and, and Garcia. And you could almost say that the progressives got about 30% and the non-progressives got about 70% in the, if you, if you didn't do the rank choice stuff, uh, when it was first choice, this was a, pretty could be looked at as a pretty decisive defeat for the progressives not 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 a success that that when alexandria ocasio-cortez endorsed maya wiley and she began rising in the polls she ended up at around 20 21 of the first choice vote but not higher and you add up her stringer and and morales and you get like 30 percent so what do you make of that as a what do you make of that as a as a question for democrats going forward about their own about their the makeup of their own party 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's the key question. How do you read Garcia's support and, and, and what it, what were those voters looking for? I guess the way I read it is I think there's a difference between a Wiley, Maya Wiley and, and Catherine Garcia. And, and when you look at it in terms of the, the first preference vote and you kind of just look at the, the map of the city and, and where each was the strongest, what jumped out at me about Maya Wiley's vote was right. She was she was a very ideological candidate. Get as far as you know, as far to the left as possible on every issue. Be very you know, outspoken on that. And I think it, it really overlapped. It really mapped with like a Bernie Sanders vote um, in the Democratic primary. So I think that's what, you know, that's what Wiley was really strongly tapping into. The Garcia one's a more interesting question to me, although I, I again, I read it as sort of like, think of your average reader of the the New York Times. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the Garcia voter. It's very Manhattan centric. It's educated. Um, it's I, I again, I, I would I would say maybe there's a distinction between leftist and liberal. It's sort of a more culturally liberal demographic. But I think the thing we've seen nationally, this isn't just the New York City thing, but nationally among that demographic um, in the last few years, you mentioned the, the idea of being the first female mayor. I wouldn't discount that as being a huge part of Catherine Garcia's appeal to that demographic because that demographic around the country was 2018, record number of female candidates winning Democratic primaries. I, I think you could, if you if you just try to run the numbers on it, there was like a 10-point advantage, an average advantage of 10 points just to being a female in a Democratic right. primary in 2018. And I think that same thing, I think her ad, I, I saw an ad she ran, she literally is breaking a glass yeah. you know, <laughs> case. I mean, it was, it was not, not too subtle, subtle right? <laughs> yeah. So I think there was, there's sort of a cultural liberalism that she taps into, I think, and there's a there's an ideological liberalism that Wiley taps into. Right, and that, but that would explain the gender specific stuff. Would explain why Garcia was the number two choice on the ranked choice ballots uh, of the of the Wiley ballots. Now, the interesting thing I saw last night, and I I I, 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 I emailed this to you was um, one of our you know one of the people who really digs in deep into the numbers on Twitter looked at it and said. I don't know, it was an 80,000 Wiley voters did not actually rank anybody under Wiley. And when she was eliminated, all those ballots disappeared. Uh, so they went, they voted for her. They didn't want to vote for anybody else or they didn't understand how it worked or whatever. They voted for her and that was it. And so uh, this, I think, is the problem with ranked choice voting. Now, we don't know whether... And I think you you brought this up, whether, you know, how do we know how many ballots, uh, uh, how many Adams ballots didn't have anybody under Adams? Since he stayed in the whole way, we don't know how many, someone used a word, it was like exhausted ballots. Exhausted like, ballots, yeah. yeah. That, that once, once, you, once you got away from number one and nobody else was there, those ballots are exhausted unless the candidate ends up in the top two. Um, but, this, but can I just ask yeah. a, a sort of structural question about ranked choice voting? Because I, I, I struggle to, I, I understand in, in theory, it's supposed to eliminate the spoiler effect and it's supposed to eliminate this sort of wasted ballot effect, right? The idea that if your choice is not uh, in the majority, then then your, your vote is not counted. And I understand, again, theoretically, how this seems to be a very pro-democratic message, small d, you know, this is good for democracy, right? Every vote counts. It will encourage more people to come out and vote if they think their vote matters. But in practice, I think what New York showed is the not just the complexity, but the lack of education of voters themselves about how this system can and should work. So I just, I'm curious, Steve, what you think it, it tells us in the broader sense about ranked choice voting, which can, which 
continues to be, I think, a little more popular on the left than the right in this country in terms of people who want to do this. Yeah, I mean, so I, if the biggest thing that emerged, a couple things I think to me emerged, I say this is sort of a, an experiment in ranked choice voting because it had never been done on this scale before. First of all, I, I think it was, it's a little weird to me that this is done in a 12 candidate primary. So 12 candidates on the ballot and you get to choose up to five. I, I'm not sure even when you look back at sort of the roots of people advocating for ranked choice voting, the situations that, that they had talked about when this, this really kind of came on the scene was much more, it had much more to do with like, hey, there's three candidates in a general election. There's a Democrat, a Republican, and there's an independent, and everybody doesn't want to vote for the independent because they think their weight, their vote's going to be wasted. So, hey, ranked choice voting, they can vote for the independent. If he only gets 10% of the vote, then we check their second choice and somebody gets 50%. It was kind of sold that way. A 12 candidate primary to try to use this complicated. Pri- I, I'm not sure this was an ideal match. And by the way, if I'm understanding it right, the general election in, in New York City will not be run with ranked choice voting only the primaries right. in New York City. So it's even that that's another a stranger element. I think the biggest knock on ranked choice voting that emerges from this, though, is what you're talking about with exhausted ballots for whatever reason, whether it's people didn't understand it, whether it's people genuinely only had one preference, whatever it is. I, I have the exact numbers here, but. Um, Basically, in the first round of voting, which in the old days of New York City pre-ranked choice voting just would have been the first, the preliminary, right? If this is these things are analogous, nine hundred thirty-seven thousand votes were cast for you know all of the different candidates. In the final round, when you take out the exhausted ballots, the the, the ballots that have been eliminated because either their five choices were used up or they they stopped ranking or whatever, um, it, the the total number of votes cast. Uh, ended up being just under 800,000. So if you're making an analogy here to the old system in New York City, where you had a first round and then potentially the top two candidates went to a runoff, you had basically 140,000 fewer votes cast in the runoff than you did in the preliminary. (laughs) And the last time New York City actually had a mayoral primary and runoff was 2001. And this was Mark Green versus Fernando Ferrer. And in 2001, there were more votes cast in the runoff than there were in the preliminary. So this this idea, you, know, you had a smaller pool of people making what ultimately was the most important choice here, the choice between Adams and Garcia. You had a smaller pool of people doing it than voted in the first round. And the last ex- example we have under the old system, you had a bigger group of people making the most important decision, right. the choice between Green and Frere. So to me, that's the biggest knock that emerges from this uh, from this experiment. I mean, you could also, you know, it's like, okay, so you, you, you create this extraordinary complicated system. In the end, the result is the same as the result was on election night. Ex- Except either Adams <laughs> looks weaker because he only wins by 8,000 votes and on election night he had won by nine percentage points, or he looks stronger because he got to 50.1% plus 50%, which is where you had to get to end the counting and the ranked choice voting. Uh, but the result was the same. And as you say, in the end, what you did was eliminate voters rather than accrete voters. Right. Um, And the fact that it's a primary and not a general makes it even stranger 
because the preferential system, you know, it's not primaries are not Democrat. I understand. I'm saying something weird, but I mean, you are choosing a candidate to run for office on a partisan ballot in a closed system, right? This is New York City. There is a, you have to be a registered Democrat to vote. It's not an open system where anybody can vote in any primary. Why is this bet? Why why would anybody look at this and say this was a this was a better way to to do this? I mean, I myself am not even in favor of runoff systems. I mean, I think those are stupid. Also, um, I don't really understand the theory behind the runoff. And you probably you're like, well, if I ask you this question, maybe you know, like, in how many runoffs does the second does the person in second place end up prevailing after the it's pretty small, right? Yeah, in the in the ranked choice voting system. When no, this I'm not even talking about used... ranked choice. I'm talking about oh, actually yeah. just take a just take an at you know races in which there are runoffs. Yeah, like doesn't the guy doesn't the person in in the person who is number one like three quarters of the time or something end up being being the person who wins the runoff? Yeah, I think it's, I, I, I guess the most recent example in my mind is Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, the Senate race there, um, you know, back in November, but yeah, no, more often than not. Yes. The, the, the first place is going to win. And in the ranked choice voting, it's, it's overwhelming the, 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 the share. I, I, John, to your point about doing it in a primary, I find it interesting and telling and not exactly surprising that, um, Wiley voters would be um, somewhat unlikely to pick a a, a, a second choice um, because there, when you're talking about the direction of the party, right, that you want the party to go into, it's 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 kind of um, it's especially the, the especially the further left you go, the less compromising you are about about what, right. what you want to see. It's sort of my my, my way or bust. You yeah. Know. Well, the other thing is that if the cla- the person, the 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 race for the progressive lane was between Wiley and Stringer, and there were a lot of people who wouldn't vote for Stringer because there were these two credible allegations of sexual misconduct against him, uh, and so you could see why somebody who was only going to go for a progressive would basically say it's Wiley or 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 nobody. Whereas the more pragmatic voters who were voting for Adams or whatever, or, 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 or Garcia would, or Yang would, would rank because right. they were making a less ideologically driven or emotional decision. But it, what is interesting though, is if you are a Wiley voter and you don't want to vote for Adams, again, we get into interesting cross reference points on, on hot button issues like race, because uh, Wiley is African American and Adams is African American, and there were you know these eighty thousand spoiled ballots. So you can sort of presume that the people who were voting for Wiley uh, were not voting for her. I mean, maybe it was an added, but but th- their first issue wasn't there should be an African American mayor right. of New York City because then you would vote for Wiley and then you would vote for Adams. Like that would be the ordinary order of business. Um, or if you wanted a person of color, now this is a weird thing because Catherine Garcia is not in fact a person of color. Her name is Garcia because she married a guy oddly named Jerry Garcia. Um, 
not the Jerry Garcia, uh, and from whom she's been divorced for almost two decades. Uh, she is not, she is not herself actually, but, but because she had the name Garcia, I think a lot of people thought that she was at least Hispanic. And so, but that, that didn't, that didn't translate, uh, that didn't translate either. Uh, let me just take a quick break and, and then we can get into some of these ethnic politics and what they might mean, uh, uh, for later on, um, uh, you know, have you uh, ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school, or your internet service provider. How can they call it incognito? Look, to really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you use Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, or even at your parents' house without ExpressVPN. Every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network, and that's still true even when you're in incognito mode. Do you really want your parents to see what you've been looking at? Well, what's more, your home internet provider, I'm talking Comcast, AT&T, whatever, can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers. So your private online activity just stays just that, private ExpressVPN works on all your devices, super easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect, and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash commentary, to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So... Steve, let's talk about the complex and fascinating ideological politics here because uh, Eric Adams ran as a non-progressive, let's say. That was not clear. It was not clear when this race started that that was what he was going to do. He had a very ill-defined candidacy, I would say. I mean, he was the most experienced person in the race in some ways. I mean, he'd been a a, a police officer, a state Senator and Brooklyn borough president. So resume wise, he had a, he had a New York city resume that was perfect for running for mayor. And his, when this all started, his sort of signature rival theoretically was Scott Stringer, who was also a borough president, right? Manhattan borough president. So um, Brooklyn, the most populous borough, Manhattan, obviously the most, I don't know, probably the highest voter turnout borough, uh, something like that. Um, so he, it wasn't clear what he was going to run for, run on. And he started out by saying, I'm the kind of person who can rein in the police department. And then around July, around February, March, uh, as crime spiked and, you know, people really started to get unnerved by, uh, Street Decay and all of that, and Andrew Yang, who was leading in the race, had decided to lean really heavily into public safety. Adams lapped him, right? Adams sort of jumped ahead of him, dropped the I'm the guy who can uh, who knows how to control the police department, and said, I'm going to carry a gun to church, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So this was kind of a, a, a very clever situational switch. Um, but his support in the end ended up, this is the big question. Like, did he get elected by the same forces that saved Joe Biden from Bernie Sanders? Was this basically middle-aged 
often middle-income African-Americans, as you said, outer borough people, that's Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, um, saying, what's all this crazy crap about, like, cutting the police department? Or, you know, he seems like a good guy. I'd like a, I'd like a, I'd like a black mayor. Uh, but uh, but basically, like uh, this, Maya Wiley is crazy. They're all crazy. They're talking about, you know, how what's going to happen? Like the subways, it's terrible. People are getting shot in my neighborhood. I don't know what, what what's your what's your take on this? Yeah, no, I, I that's basically how I read it. I think one one question I have is, you know, how much kind of built in familiarity um, did Adams already enjoy with the electorate, particularly, you know, in Brooklyn? Um, it, it gave him a leg up kind of going into it. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking here is if there was a candidate, you know, from Manhattan or something who was unknown in, in Brooklyn and the outer boroughs who ran on, on a quality of life platform, would it have resonated the way it, it did with the, with these voters coming from Eric Adams? So I, I do wonder about that. But I think the the parallel you draw there to the Democratic primaries in 2020 is the one that's on my mind, because I see a very clear kind of three way parallel here. I said, Wiley equals Sanders. I mean, I just look at where her votes were coming from, um, and, and I see that right away. Uh, to me, uh, Garcia equals Elizabeth Warren. And and the thing, and I say that, I don't mean that in terms yeah. of her platform, but I see what we what I saw in poll after poll in 2019 and 2020 was Elizabeth, there was a, we talked about Sanders and Warren being one and the same, and yet there were huge demographic or significant demographic differences between who they were appealing to. And Elizabeth Warren was appealing really strongly to upper income, college educated, slightly more female demographic um, than Bernie Sanders was. Sanders had a lot more youth support. Sanders had a lot more ideological support. There was a, there were some pretty clear differences there. And I, I think that's what Garcia was, what we saw with Warren. Wiley was what we saw with Sanders. And yeah, that leaves Adams with what we saw, you know, with Joe Biden. And, and he says, I say outer borough, um, there was middle income. You know, you see that in a lot of neighborhoods in Queens, middle-class black areas, also lower income. You know, when you look at the neighborhoods that have like the, the NYCHA housing projects, um, Adams just rolling up massive numbers there. Yeah. And I do, I, you know, it's, it's extremely notable to me um, that he did that on a message. He, he ran on quality of life issues. You know, I, I would say, and he talked I about thought, it. I thought, by the, the way, other I thought, by the way, you were uh, when you said there was three ways that you were going to say that Garcia was Amy Klobuchar because, honest to God, close your eyes and listen to the two of them talk, and you they have exactly the same voice. It's weird because Garcia's from Brooklyn and Klobuchar is from is from uh, Minneapolis, and they have exactly the same voice. It was one of the eerie, but obviously you're yeah, obviously you're you're right that she's the. She she's the the Warren. I just think again the weird thing is if you added up Warren and and uh, and Sanders in the end they didn't they didn't lap uh, they didn't lap Biden. Uh, Biden won this you know once the two early states were were done. Biden won the easiest primary victory in I I don't know I mean for 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 a non incumbent it was the easiest primary victory. Well, Kerry had a pretty easy primary victory, I guess. Um, but I mean, it was like crazy. And and Adams, uh, somebody we should talk about what happened to Andrew Yang because that's also an interesting element. Uh, this kind of collapse, and then it once he collapsed, uh, that's how Adams jumped from. Tw- you know, if you if you take the poll, if you think the polls actually were measuring anything real, 
Adams jumped from 20 to 30 and Yang fell from like 25 to 15. And so everybody went to Adams from Yang. Like nobody went anywhere else as far as one can tell. But doesn't uh, th- that collapse as well as Wiley not performing as well as she did? It, it, I, I find it fascinating and ironic because it's the lived experience problem that the Democrats have right now, right? You have progressive, highly educated white people in the Democratic Party always talking about how important lived experience is, right? Like we have to honor lived experience and they want to defund the police and do all this stuff. The candidates who actually can speak to real lived experience of people who live in neighborhoods with high crime, who are concerned about quality of life, they do better. And Yang was seen as a bit of a fake, right? Remember the bodega video, the the bodega ad where he didn't clearly seemed to be a real New Yorker. He seemed inauthentic, although I think a lot of people liked his optimism and his enthusiasm. But Maya Wiley, you said Stringer sexual harassment, the allegations took him down. I think that that uh, the number of news stories hitting Wiley on the fact that she had private security in her neighborhood, even though she was arguing for defund the police, that resonates with people who can't afford that sort of thing and who live in conditions where they daily are concerned about their personal safety and the safety of their families. And that lived experience is something that I, I think those progressive candidates don't speak to in the same way that Biden actually did speak to those voters in the primary and they rewarded him for it. I mean, they're the irony of the progressive left and they don't, they haven't learned this lesson yet. AOC and others are still kind of beating the defund the police drum, uh, real world experience of crime and, and the changes in people's sense of personal safety will matter at the ballot box, particularly in the upcoming midterms. Look, I, I don't, I don't give Curtis Lewa, who was the Republican nominee for, for mayor, uh, Remember, we did have, you know, we had Republican mayors. Giuliani won won two races a Republican. Bloomberg won two races a Republican, then ran as an independent. Um, It's not that Republicans can't win here, although I think the margin, uh, the party margin since Trump and since uh, Obama has has now gotten close to insuperable. Um, And with the exception of Staten Island, there is no area that is even, you know, sort of reliably like to the right, let's say, except maybe a couple of the um, Hasidic or Haredi neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Well, but, Trump, um, Trump yeah. did pick up something like five points between 2016 and 2015. Yeah, but I mean, right? yeah, but he went from like, uh, I don't know, what was in it? New he York. went from like nine to 14 or something right. like that. Yeah. I mean, he picked up, yeah. for him, it was an enormous, it was like a 33% increase right. for right. for for anybody else. It was, it was, it was nothing. But right. uh, what I... I don't give Curtis Lee much of it. I wouldn't have given him much of a chance if Maya Wiley had somehow ended up as mayor. But I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that, that uh, Adams is about as pro police as you could get from somebody who could win in a democratic primary a year after George Floyd, that he, he ended up being a kind of perf surreally perfect candidate for the moment uh, he was somebody who, under other circumstances, could have been you could co- co- have come at him from the right as an anti-cop cop. I mean, he, his his history in the police department was largely based on having run an organization called 100 Black People in Law Enforcement Who Care, started in the 1990s, that was kind of aligned with Sharpton and Farrakhan in the 90s. Although then he said he was a he's a very flaky guy. He said he was a Republican at one point. He's a vegan. I mean, he's got all kinds of weird cross currents and probably lives in New Jersey and says he lives in Brooklyn. Um, 
but he had this like surreal moment because he sort of like he threaded this needle where people needed to hear that somebody was going to do something to make sure that New York didn't sink into the into the Hudson on crime. But, and so I don't think Sliwa even has an issue against him. He might have had an issue against somebody else. But Adams wins in November, let's say. Doesn't he have to deliver? Like, what is it that he has to deliver? That's the weird part. De Blasio knew when he won in 2013, he knew this one thing. He wanted to be the progressive hero of of America. The nation said he was America's progressive, you know, he was like the next progressive idol, you know, like that. He knew he could not see a crime increase on his watch. He hired Ray Kelly to be the police commissioner uh, in order to make sure that somebody was there to make sure the crime didn't go up, even though he had run against stop and frisk and he'd said his son had been, you know, mistreated by the police or he was worried that his son had been mistreated by the police. That was something that was unsurvivable in 2014. He could not be the mayor that returned that, that had New York. Now, as it happens, he, at the end of his tenure, he is now the mayor uh, at a time of, of, of increasing crime, but he doesn't have a way of running again. This is my big question about when you run as the non-progressive who can get things done and you say, I am the guy who can run the police department and help you. Don't you have to do that? Like, can you can you survive politically if you don't deliver on that promise, if that's the kind of thing that got you there? Steve, what... what yeah, I mean, I, I to me, that's the it, it's the big question in New York. It's the big question nationally. I mean, I, you guys have been talking about this, but it's what are we seeing with with crime? What are we seeing with violent crime? What are we seeing with murder? Um, the year over year increases are clear. Um, you know, the two responses you hear from people who say, you know, hey, this doesn't necessarily mean much. Or, you know, number one, it's you know still way lower than it was you know, in the, in the early 1990s. And number two, hey, it's a COVID, um, it's a product of COVID. Well, we're going to, that's going to be tested um, in the next couple of years. That's going to be tested in New York. That's going to be tested in every city around the country. Um, and I, I look, if, if we get back into a place where we're seeing significant annual increases in violent crime and it can't be dismissed as a blip and you're starting to get back to, um, you know, four years of increase like we saw in the last year, is, is going to put us, you know, back into a place we haven't been in more than a generation in, in American politics. And I mean, I, I, I came of age kind of, uh, politically at the, at the tail end of it, but I can still remember when the polls used to show, you know, 1993, 1994, what's the number one issue in America and violent crime would come back ahead of healthcare, ahead of taxes, ahead of jobs, violent crime would be the number one national issue. Um, and I, I remember the effect that had on the, on the political system. That is the climate that Rudy Giuliani got elected in over David Dinkins in 1993. Um, and, and if that climate comes back, I don't think there's going to be much patience with, with a mayor in New York or anywhere, um, who's presiding over it. But if that, if that comes back, and I don't, I don't know the answer, does stop and frisk come back under another name? Well, you know, this is something that we, we've been talking about, which is that, you know, Adam says, and they all said in, in, in the debates in New York City, like, we've got to get guns off the streets. We've got to get guns off the streets. Locally, there is no policy that involves the actual removal of guns from the streets or in the hands of the criminals than 
stop and frisk. There is no policy. Like you can see a national policy, you can see a federal, but you can see some kind of a, I mean, you could do buybacks. They're like, they're gimmicky things that you could try, but um, you know, you could see changes in state law, which is not New York city. You could see changes in federal law. You could, whatever it is. Um, the only way to remove guns from the hands of criminals is to is is stop and frisk, and of course we're not going to see stop and frisk. Now, I I myself don't know. We don't really know if stop and frisk worked or didn't work. Like, there's a lot of social science data that says that it wasn't that effective. That's the classic thing. It wasn't that effective, or or the cost benefit analysis of stop and frisk is that the so the the distrust and discomfort of enormous numbers of citizens particularly in New York City uh because they were stopped and frisked outweighed whatever advantage there was in the in the finding of the illegal guns and the and the seizure of them on the spot by by the police department um and that that's a that's a qualitative question about citizenship and and citizenry and what it you know and 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 taking offense and all of that that isn't really answerable but we but we do know that you know 10,000 guns a year were taken were were removed from people who were not licensed to own them and have them and if you think what you need to do is get guns off the streets i'm just not sure that there is a <laughs> there is another policy and so that's when i look at adams and i say okay the rubber's going to meet the road. He's kind of getting elected on a somewhat single issue platform about the improving quality of life using this as the centerpiece strategy of removing guns from the streets. And he will not have a way, he will not actually have an approach for taking guns off the streets. But he could, but he could actually, he is in, you said earlier, is kind of uniquely uh, situated at this particular moment. Look, there are a not negligible number of people in major cities in this country who carry guns for personal protection. They live in neighborhoods and these are not legal guns. They get a hold of a gun and they walk around with it because they live in fear for their own lives right. or for, you know, those of their family. Then there's a percentage of people who are using guns to, to commit crimes and to threaten others and whatnot. And a way to thread that needle is, I mean, it's, sounds kind of strange to say rebrand stop and frisk but a leader a political leader who could say we are going to use the police in a reformed way we, we learned our lessons from stop and frisk we're going to learn how who has the guns and using them for bad reasons we're going to encourage people to to be licensed gun owners if they feel they need personal protection but these blanket we're just going to get guns off the streets that doesn't speak to the population of people who voted in uh someone who claims they're going to improve their safety but they still don't feel safe on a daily basis and they walk around with a weapon for their own personal protection right. whether it's legally registered or not okay to talk about uh, to, to move on to, from you know, we're talking about these numbers and i want to talk about another number i saw uh, which is that uh in april apparently the number of jobs uh that went begging uh, that uh, job openings in the united states there were 913,000 job openings. There has never been a number anywhere anywhere near that large. And I bring this up to say that if you were reading David Bonson's DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com newsletters, you would have known that this was coming. You would understand what it means and why it is that these jobs are going begging and why everywhere in the United States you are hearing about uh, labor shortages in the hospitality industry and the restaurant business. Um, everybody, I have a, I have a 
friend, I have friends who have a, a medical practice. They are having an enormous amount of trouble finding and keeping people to work in the medical practice, largely because people, if they you know, can, depending on where you live, can make thirty thousand effectively thirty thousand dollars a year because of unemployment insurance through the end of September. And so David Bonson's Dividend Cafe and the DCToday.com newsletters, these are uh, explorations on a daily and weekly basis of what is going on in the markets and the marketplace and the interplay of government politics and policy. And uh, this is one of the great questions or macroeconomic questions about uh, the recovery, the economic recovery, and what ha- what is happening with our economy when uh, people need people to work in order to have the growth that we need and to for them to supply the wants and needs of America's consumers, and yet they can't get people to fill the jobs. So um, I turn to this every day to see where the markets are, see what's going on with government policy in relation to the to uh, to the economy david runs this three billion dollar firm by coastal financial services firm and it is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business the dctoday.com dividendcafe.com go go take a look um so in in general then this is the rubber meeting the road question so we now have all of this data that we know all this day we have these two data points right or two data points biden taking the election by running totally as a, li- a liberal i mean it's not like he's a neocon or he's you know he was ed Koch or something like that he's a liberal he's a social liberal he's pushing all kinds of social liberal agenda items uh, as president um but as uh, but but not as a but not as a progressive uh with a with a a hunger for you know total economic renovation and and overhauling everything or whatever you want to call it and now we have this race in new york's largest city right which i think would be somewhere around the 15th or 16th most populous state in the country if it were a state uh and uh, this is the first major elections aside from the Georgia runoff since since the uh, it's pretty much right. It's the most it's the biggest election since the since the presidential election, and so uh, we have these two major things, which is that the people who said "Nah, nah the, those guys are too crazy," because stick with me, and then the question is, what are the voters who who pick them among say among among the Democrats? Uh, how do they feel? And then what about the general electorate who didn't participate in the, in the primary season, uh, but, you know, gave Biden 81 million votes and gave, uh, and so Adams, you know, whatever. So are we looking at, do they have to prove themselves in policy terms? Do they have to deliver? This is my, I never, I never know. I always think like policy matters and how you do matters and all that, but you never really know if that's the case when you're in a, in this kind of polarized atmosphere. Like, is it, is it just enough not to be the other team and Biden will get credit for not being Trump and not being the Republicans and the Democrats will get that credit and Adams will do, even though he's in a city without many Republicans or do they have to deliver or they will lose not only the affection and enthusiasm of, but there'll be all these ancillary consequences. 
What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I I, I view the the New York story as it is it's it's a story about the Democratic Party. Um, you know, the discussion we've been having about the you know, I, I think it's it to me the New York City election and the result here with Adams kind of it, it highlights something. Um, it's gotten some attention, but I, I don't think that the dynamic is changing. And that is, there's a pretty big gap between sort of um, the Democratic Party um, as presented through, I guess you would say, the media and mass culture. And that is the Democratic Party of Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia. Yeah. And then the Democratic Party of an awful lot of Democratic voters. And that's the Adams Coalition. And it's a it's a middle class, working class um, poor. In, in his case, there, there's a lot of black voters. There's also a lot of Hispanic voters. There's some white voters in there as well. But there's a there's a class kind of divide there that I think we've seen. We've seen it in New York. We've seen it in other places. I think there's a gap there. Look, there is a, a honestly, it's, I don't know if the, the, the it's, it's related to this uh, exactly in New York or not what you talked about, but it's, there's a little bit there in terms of what Donald Trump tapped into um, last November with the inroads he made with with non-white voters again he still overwhelmingly lost non-white voters but he did better in 2020 than in 2016 i think there's a class element to that i think it's probably related to this this gap that's kind of emerged in the democratic party so i think there's a there's a continuing story there about the democratic party there there is some kind of opportunity there for for republicans that's a much bigger longer term um question but but there is a group of voters there i could that they may have an opportunity to tap into but there's a lot they'd have to do to, to do that in terms of the um you know the biden question and um the broader one what i'm looking toward is is virginia um this ah, november right. that's going to be the to me that'll be the biggest single election of um you know of 2021 and you know there it is 10 point state for joe biden over uh, over donald trump suburbs of northern virginia right outside dc suburbs of of richmond these are areas that have been moving dramatically towards the democrats uh, because of college educated largely uh, white uh, uh, voters um have gone dramatically towards the democrats it was accelerated by the trump era and and how much if at all how much has that receded that's the question to me for for november in virginia uh, if the republicans ever won in Virginia in November, or made it just a squeaker, you know, a, a, a one, two point race there. Um, I think that the thing you would take away from that is that they've clawed back some of those suburban losses. And that would portend well for them in 2022, because there are a lot of suburban areas around the country where they could pick right. off seats in 2022. Well, Virginia was the canary in the coal mine for 2010, also in 2009, yeah. when uh, McDonald uh, won what a lot of people thought was a surprise victory uh, in the, in the, Virginia governor's race there. That was also the same year that, that Chris Christie won in New Jersey. And there were all these harbingers of this, you know, obviously I don't think that's going to happen in New Jersey this year either. And it is an interesting question about wh- where the gap closes. There is a, also a history of gaps closing in Virginia. Um, Ed, Ed Gillespie uh, uh, came startlingly close in 20, 2014, yeah. 2014, um, uh, two and a half points. And he was down to, it was always this, this, this uh, thing uh, as the Republican candidate in a year when, when the party had gone, had gone like kind of crazy Trumpy and the Eric Cantor had been the, the actual house, the number two guy in the house was defeated by an insurgent Trumpian guy in the primary uh, in Virginia. And, and yet Gillespie came, who was a, who had been the chairman of the RNC came really close 
thus, again, also Harold, that was the same year that Republicans won nine seats in the Senate. So I, I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because you look at it and you think, well, I don't know, Virginia's gone. Like Virginia's Virginia's now a uh, Virginia's a blue state, but ooh, I don't know. Okay, so look, but look, there's another issue that's that's galvanizing a lot of voters, uh, those suburban voters in places like Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Virginia, and that's critical race theory stuff. So it's not actually about crime for these families. It's public school parents who are now very concerned about what's in the curriculum. And it's not, these are not just Fox News viewers, right? There, there's a real debate going on about the curriculum in public schools. The teachers unions are aligning themselves with the pro-critical race theory types while claiming it's not critical race theory. Uh, but the equity work, as Loudoun County's uh, school board recently called it, um, the, the post-George Floyd reckoning race stuff. And I do think that that, uh, on top of a year where, particularly in places like Fairfax County, a lot of public schools remained closed because of union power, Parents are really annoyed and suburban parents who might be perfectly happy with Joe Biden as president aren't necessarily going to be happy with this at the local level. And they're not just going to take huh. it on their school board. So that's another issue to watch, I think, in terms of what Steve was saying with with where we're headed. Steve, as a as a as a as a real master of these of the of of this sort of like voter input data, I, this is the thing that I've always wondered about, about this thing we talk about, about parents revolt and all of that, like. How many parents, you know, it's like how many people, so if you're a parent, so you could also be a grandparent, but let's say you're, you're actually a parent with kids in schools, right? That's, there are 75 million people under the age of 18 in the United States. So theoretically, so there are 150 million parents. Well, no, because they can have two kids, whatever. This is a, but this is actually like a smaller number percentage wise than it was certainly like. 40 years ago, right? The parent as a voter. Uh, can there be, could a parent's revolt have a significant electoral consequence? Or, you know, I mean, is this like a sleeping giant? People become conscious and vote on an issue that they haven't voted on before. Are there enough of them? Well, that's, that's why Christine mentions Loudoun County, which is sort of the epicenter of this in Northern Virginia. I say Northern Virginia, I, Loudoun County in particular, when we get these results on uh, in November in Virginia, is the one I'm going to look at the closest. Um, I mean, parents as a as a voting block would be disproportionately represented in a county like Loudoun County. Massive suburban, exurban, you, you get some distance there from Washington, D.C. But what it is, it's, you know, it's it's housing developments for families that have gone up over the last 20 years that have been flooded with, you know, with people to raise families. So you've got a lot of parents, disproportionate large number in a place like Loudoun County. Um, and, and think about the voting history of a place like that. I mean, this speaks to all of of, uh, of Northern Virginia. In 2012, this, you know, less than a decade ago, Romney versus Obama, Loudoun County was 51 to 47 for Obama. It was actually an exact bellwether of uh, of the state of virginia four points for uh, for barack obama 2020 trump versus biden loudon county was biden by 25 so more than 20 point increase one of the biggest jumps democrats have had so it's, it's a 20 point increase add on top of that the growth that occurred in loudon county between 2012 and 2020 they're getting a massive bang for their buck there i want to see does a does that margin come down in this governor's race is it instead of 25 at 25 is it you know 12 or something i think that alone you know would be significant but also to more specifically to this point about the the, the what's going on in loudon county is is if there's a shift in loudon is it larger 
than you see in other counties? Is it larger than you right. see in other parts of Virginia? Because then I think you'd start to say, oh, there's something going on there specific to Loudoun County. But we'd also have to see whether the, the, the gubernatorial, the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, whose name alludes... I, I, Glenn Youngkin. Glenn, thank you, Youngkin, right. Whether he leans into this heavily, I mean, which we hear, you know, oh, this is, this is the hot button Republican issue. They're going to go cultural, you know, with critical race theory and schools and unions and all of that. And, you know, the, that's again, an interesting question, which is this guy's very rich. He's got a lot of money to spend on research and all of that. And I wonder, you know, cause a lot of this is driven by what people think they see on Fox and a lot of what we talk about and all of that. I wonder whether when you're trying to figure out actually how to create the conditions under which you can pull this inside straight and win, a, uh, you know, win as the nominee from Virginia, whether he will look at this and say, this is a great thing for me to hit, you know, this actually is the secret sauce or whether they'll go, eh, I don't know. I mean, there are other things that are, are there are other things that are better. Like uh, you, you could, you could trigger, hostility on you could you could trigger a larger than usual black turnout for terry mcauliffe the democratic nominee if you hit this too hard stuff like that we're gonna know i think from the way a lot of these candidates behave whether these issue sets that we think might do it for them and that obviously that fox and talk radio think are doing it for them actually are the way to go uh because you know it's what what it's what they're what they're going to bet on i mean obviously yunkin wants to wants to win and he has the resources uh, personal resources to do whatever is necessary to get there if you can get there um and of course he's also not really a politician we don't really know whether he'll be you know lame or you know screw up or whatever and mcauliffe is whatever mcauliffe is he's experienced you know he was uh, and, and, and also has the advantage of having had whatever peccadillo, personal peccadillos and, and weird things and all of that having been ventilated over 25 years, you know, or almost 30 years of public, you know, sort of, uh, as a public presence. And so, you know, there's nothing new under the sun with him, you know, and he uh, has already, uh, been there and done that. Um, so, but that is a, anyway, it's a really interesting, thing because when it when 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 it came right down to it when biden had to be saved and when adams had to make his move i wouldn't say they moved to the right but they moved away they they set themselves against the hot corner of their own party the, the what appears to be or what people think is the growth sector in their own party and so that's interesting because they can also co-opt it like they can win and then just be progressives in all but name which is you know kind well, of half yeah go yeah ahead. well i mean i think you know <clears throat> as we've discussed biden has done that somewhat right i mean he didn't he sort of you know ran against uh leftist twitter let's say and then it's kind of governed sort of adjacent to them in some sense. Right. Um, I think it's much harder to do as mayor of New York. It's, 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 it's too small a place where your, your policies are too um, readily dissected and understood and the results seen 
and and you, you you can't there's a lot of fog that that biden can sort of throw up and hide under um there's a lot of sort of complicated you know uh, uh um, international foreign policy issues where you don't want to give away too much you don't want to talk too much there's a lot of there's a lot of backroom negotiating that that that's part of that job i think as mayor um, it, it, of New York, there's you don't you don't have that room. You've, you, you've- Adams Adams also has two things. Or the mayor of New York is a statutorily incredibly powerful office. Revision of the city charter in 1989 gave the mayor like like uh, is is one of the strongest executive offices in the nation, and the city council has very little power and very little check on his authority. Does not much except rename. Does a lot of street renaming. Loves to loves to rename a street, uh, you know, which still has this name that it had. By the way, it's just that then they add on Duke Ellington Boulevard or something like that. Like that's that's large. That's most of the legislative action of the New York City Council. So on the one end, he's got nowhere to hide. He does have the advantage coming into office that. Uh, the dynamic that hit Bill de Blasio was that Mario Cuomo, Mario, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, uh, took one look at de Blasio and said, I want to destroy you. You are trying to eat my lunch or steal my thunder, and I am going to wake up every morning to think about ways to thwart you, hurt you, make you ineffectual, and kill you. And Cuomo has to run next year. He's running for his life, running for his fourth term. He needs a big turnout in New York City. He's got to deliver stuff to New York City. He can't be in a war with the mayor, in my view. I mean, I think politically, because there's a, there will be a credible, a, probably be a credible Republican candidate in Lee Zeldin, the congressman from Suffolk County, um, as governor in the Republican Party. Obviously, a hard pull for a Republican to win in the state, but not impossible with Cuomo with his disadvantages. And he's going to have to, he's going to need Adams to do, he's going to need Democrats in New York City to feel good about him. And being at war with Adams, I don't think is the, would be the right way to do it. But Steve, you're a, you're a, you're a watcher of these guys. You, you may have your own. Well, no, and I was just, it occurs to me, think about Andrew Cuomo um, getting reelected 2014 and 2018 in New York, and he got Democratic primary challenges both times. Zephyr Teachout, if anybody remembers, in 2014, and then the actress uh, Cynthia Nixon in 2018. The Teachout one, I think, ended up doing a little better. She won it, but if you look at the New York City portion uh, of those primaries, it is exactly what we've been talking about with the mayor's race. The Adams voters were the Cuomo voters. The, the the Garcia voters and, and the Wiley voters were the teach out voters were the were the Cynthia Nixon voters so so Andrew Cuomo was powered in, in fending off those challenges by Andrew uh, by uh, uh, Eric Adams voters so I think it's it's a, as, as you says he looks ahead to um, a really perilous time for him in in 2022 and we'll see if some kind of a primary challenge emerges for him that he's got to deal with again I mean that's that's the the heart and soul of his coalition right there is is the exact same group that just uh, that just put Adams over the top. Right. Hey, guys, you know, can your office chair give you a massage while you're sitting at your desk? Mine can. Can your office chair warm your back on cold mornings or cool you off on hot days? Mine can. I have an X chair. I don't have any old no-name office chair. X chair. I love it. You know I love it. I've never had an office chair that looks or feels so amazing. It's so comfortable I can sit for hours never feel uncomfortable. The secret is that patented dynamic variable lumbar support which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back and now introduces Elamax, featuring cooling heat and massage therapy. 
The LMAX Cooling delivers heat and massage technology directly to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. All perks that make working from home or the office a joy and four different massage modes for therapy for your sore back. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it. It's time to trade in your old uncomfortable office chair. Trade up to an X chair. And X chair prices are going up on July 11th. That's just a few days from now. For the first time in two years, beat the price increase. You got like four days to be the price increase. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, Steve, any other weird political things you're looking at that you can pull off that at the top of your head that uh, that you think people might not be uh, on their radar that they might want to look at? Um, yeah, trying to think what's you know, I, I tell you that the dog that didn't bark that I uh, was uh, I thought this year we were going to get a bunch of these uh, special elections in, in the first six months of the year um, that would be sort of, you know, early barometers of, of public reaction to Biden. I think the Biden administration was was pretty smart in that they did not take it, 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 com- people from competitive districts, competitive seats um, and, and set up these special election tests, something we saw in the early days of Trump. I, I was um, uh, th- there was one about a month ago, New Mexico in uh, right around Albuquerque, basically, that I was looking at saying, geez, you know, this will, it's it was a 20 point Biden district. And, you know, maybe this will be one where the Republicans keep it to 10. And it's and the Democrats actually did a point better there than they had um, in. in that, um, right. That was because he took the the secretary of the interior. Right. Was right. The Deb, Deb Holland. Deb Holland. Holland right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so, uh, yeah. so it was, yeah, it was one of those where I, I, I it's more, I, I put everybody on alert here at, uh, uh, <laughs> in TV land and said, Hey, yeah. if there's a big surprise tonight, we're ready to go. And we waited around and then it was a 25 point race. So that was, that was the dog that didn't bark, but that's why I say, yeah, from, from my standpoint, I'm looking ahead right. to, uh, to Virginia this, uh, this November. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, basically the real polling question for the summer is what flavor should Joe Biden get tomorrow at whatever ice cream stand he is going to i know you know uh, people on the right are making a lot of fun of this i have no problem with the idea that people kind of would like to like the president and sort of like that he has a or you know even the media are sort of are sucking up to him by sort of like talking about how he's like an old guy who likes to eat ice cream i mean Honestly, if there had been more of that with Trump, if Trump had like been a more like normal a person who wasn't who had normal passions, tastes and interests or at least could be or at least could play that card, you know, a little bit. Um you know, he had a sports team he liked, he had a you know, he never had any of that and it helped keep this whole idea that, you know, he was some X factor freak who had gotten into the presidency and just didn't behave the way other people who just, you know, are in politics and love being around people or love, you know, like, yeah, got there. So, you know, they can, they can have a bowl of ice cream, whenever they want, you know, the, the white house mess can bring them a bowl of soup at two o'clock in the morning. That's fun. Or, you know, you get to throw out a first pit, whatever it is. And so if that's, if Biden has that, then, you know, that's, that's the thing that, even if you love Trump, you should understand was a terrible weakness on his part 
that there was that's like, yeah, I like ice cream too. Like, what is it that Trump liked that you as an ordinary person also liked? I, yeah, but he but he's teetering on the edge of ice cream overkill because now he's using it to like avoid questions about Afghanistan, for example. Like he's gotta be careful with his ice cream, you know, enthusiasm. Just like Nancy Pelosi learned with her, you know, twelve dollar Jenny's ice cream and her whatnot. Right. Yeah. Fine line. <laughs> on that Afghanistan point, by the way, I'll say this, you know, because we 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 attack a, a lot of the way the, <clears throat> the the media treats Biden, but um, I've noticed that they've been very refreshingly and to me surprisingly um, not sugarcoating uh, the reality of of um, the the drawdown in Afghanistan. I mean, I've seen report after report, article after article, in places like the Washington Post and all sorts of networks. Um, talking about the very serious ramifications that we've we've already enumerated um here but um it's not something i expected to see i i I did expect there Uh to at least be some sort of happy talk about it up until the 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 problems arose well steve maybe next time we ask you on we can actually talk about whether or not it is will ever be possible for foreign policy to play the kind of central role um, in American politics that it, you know, that it did for most of my life, and then somehow seemed to vanish as a central preoccupation of the electorate, uh, pretty much in the last four years. But uh, whatever, it's just kind of we are in a weird place where, yeah, we're ending a war that we fought for 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 twenty years, and nobody is even paying. It, it, Serious media people who know about it are paying attention, but it doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that anybody thinks, oh, my God, uh, Biden's making a huge mistake here. This could have terrible electoral consequences for him. It's, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I love and I tell people the best part about the job that I have is I have access to the NBC News archives right in my computer. And so I can just, you know, keyword search, date search, any NBC News content going back to like 1950. Um, and when you watch the just a random call up a random nightly newscast from 1975 and, you know, they're leading with eight minutes on Angola and, you know, yeah. and then it's, you know, yeah. by the way, here's what happened yeah. to the Senate. It, it is it's astounding to me. I mean, just obviously how much the length of every story has changed in the report and the time, given, but the, also the content, the foreign policy component of the news, 70s, 80s, Cold War era was it, it was the majority of the newscast night after night. You know, I uh, started my professional career at Time Magazine in September of 1982. The week that I was there uh, was the Falklands and the war in Lebanon, both like that, that was, that was going on. So I was, I was a researcher in the world section and the two front sections, I mean, there were three, there was world, world, nation, world, and business, right? Were the three front sections. And then you had all the other issues or whatever. But uh, there was always a fight weekly about who had more territory in the magazine, nation or world. And that was a fight between, say, nation getting 12 pages and world getting 10 or nation getting 11 and world getting 14 or something like that. Um, But world tended to win over nation. Now... You wouldn't even have a world. I mean, I, I, there is a Time magazine. I don't even know what it is. I barely look at it. But but you wouldn't even have a world section, right? I mean, right now we heard this morning that the uh, that the uh, prime, you know the president of Haiti was assassinated in his in his 
bed. Uh, and his wife was shot also. Uh, Time would have had a team of five people ch- chartering a plane to fly to Haiti to do a three-page situationer, as we called it, or a takeout on on this crisis when I was 21 and starting my job. Um, and it did lead NPR this morning. But uh, I think it, you, you will be able to count in the pretty much in the number of seconds how much attention is paid to this on the nightly newscast tonight. I mean, they'll mention it. But it'll be, and yeah, ni- 1975, it would have been 10, 10 minutes. And so it's just, uh, it's fascinating. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Steve had a, Steve had a computer crisis at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning of the podcast, because uh, his computer uh, automatically updated and kept him from us for a while. And then I had a carbon monoxide battery crisis that kept me, it meant that I, we had to restart the podcast because I had to take the battery out of the carbon monoxide thing so it would stop beeping and you wouldn't have heard the beeping the whole time. But we got it done. We got it done. Steve, it's fantastic to have you. Uh, Noah will be back next week. For Abe and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>